Hello, dear friends and damn givers. A happy new year to you and yours. This is the Let's Give a Damn podcast, and I'm Nick Laparo. On this show, I have conversations with all kinds of amazing humans that have two things in common. They all give a damn, and they're all striving to live meaningful lives. Thank you for hitting play on your phone this week. Thank you for showing up this week. I'm so incredibly glad you're here. As we begin this brand new year with brand new possibilities and opportunities, if you have 60 seconds to spare, would you be willing to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts? It really helps, and I promise it will only take a few seconds. And as you're listening to today's episode, think about who should hear it and send it to them right away. I listen to a ton of podcasts, and almost every time I post about it on social media or I share it with a friend, sometimes I do both. This is super helpful for those of us out here hustling and creating content. Now, you may have noticed that we didn't publish any podcasts for most of December. That, my friends, was not planned. But sometimes life gives us the big middle finger, and we have to roll with it. In case you missed the social media post, my brother-in-law, Michael Barnhart, may he rest in peace, died by suicide in the middle of December. I don't want to overshare here for multiple reasons, but I will say that the last few weeks have been very, very difficult, and the last few years have been very difficult for Michael, so hard. He was in so much pain. He fought and he fought, but he couldn't take it any longer. On the one hand, I'm super fucking devastated that he is gone. I've known him for 14, 15 years. He was so young, so funny, so full of life. He was the life of every party. He was loved by so many, and he loved so many people. So on the one hand, I'm super devastated. On the other hand, though, I am glad that he is at peace and no longer in pain. I miss him. We miss him. If you're the praying type or the healing vibes type, please send your prayers and healing vibes, your good vibes, to my amazing wife, Rebecca and to her family, and my family, the Barnharts. As you can imagine, we will be grieving for a long time to come. And the only reason I'm not sobbing right now is because that's all we've been doing for the past two or three weeks, so my tear ducts are empty. Um, they will refill soon, I'm sure. But for now, um, yeah, it's just a lot of numbness right now, really, as we continue to grieve. And I wanted to share this bit of hard news with you for two reasons. First, I wanted to explain my and our absence uh, in December. And second, I wanted to remind you, every single one of you, that I love you, that I need you, that we need you, we want you. Help is near. And please know that better days are ahead. I know it may not feel like that right now, but I believe for you, for me, for all of us, there are better days ahead. So please hang in there. 
reach out to those around you that love you or reach out to me. Hello at letsgiveadam.com. Please speak up. Please accept help. Please go to therapy, counseling. Please get help. Don't suffer in silence. Don't suffer alone. Please, please, please. I love you. We love you. Okay, I had a bunch of ideas and thoughts that I was going to share with you in this episode in the form of a monologue as the first episode of the year. But I decided we needed a best of 2021 episode because we had so many incredible conversations last year. As I've been looking back on the year, I was almost in tears. I'm just so grateful that I get to talk with all of these amazing humans and that I get to share my conversations with them, with you, once a week. So I will record that monologue soon because I do have many things that are on my mind. But let's do a best of episode, shall we? And I I know that it's a little bit late for a best of 2021 episode since most everybody did theirs two, three weeks ago. But I already explained why I wasn't around in December. And so I hope that you'll accept this episode now at the beginning of the year of our Lord 2022. So here's how it's going to go. I have chosen one clip for each month of 2021. One clip from one conversation from each month last year. Some will be inspiring moments. Some will be more instructive in nature. And there's some funny moments in there as well. But all of these moments are really good. And if you hear from someone that you haven't heard from before, I encourage you to go back and listen to the entire conversation. I purposefully, for some of them, chose something that was good and solid and stands on its own, but it's a little bit out of context. So maybe you're wondering what's going on. I hope you will go look for that context. I hope you will go look for that entire conversation and digest it and hear the whole thing. Before we begin, as always, a quick reminder that you can anytime and for any reason email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show. If you need help, reach out, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now let's get right into this best of 2021 episode. Some of my favorite moments from some of my favorite badass humans around. Here we go. January 27 with Reshma Shajani. Talk about for a second some of the like ups and downs of running this organization, right? Because one of the things that I tried to, you know, focus on on this show is when we're talking about projects, whether they're for-profit companies, non-profit companies, or just like, yeah, actual projects, there's this desire always. You think you have this amazing idea and you think it's going to like take off and, you know, overnight sensation, the whole, the whole thing. And we have a problem um, in this, in this super fast paced culture that we live in where we want things now. Uh we have a problem with sticking with things long yeah. enough. Like, like we really believe in it, but then it doesn't work. And so it's off to the wayside when really that could have been something tremendous had you stuck with it for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years 
We wanted that to happen in six months. And like, look at, I think this is a great idea. Why don't you all think this is a great idea? And so talk through like, uh, just for a couple minutes about the journey. Like, how has that been like building this thing up? Yeah. What have been some of the struggles and some of the wins? Well, I think first was like, I wasn't a nonprofit leader. Mm. You know, if you, when you know me, like, I like to go fast and I like to go big and nonprofits are historically slow, slow as sludge, bureaucratic and, you know, it's hard. And so like, to me, I always ran or tried to run the organization more like a movement or even more like a startup, right. Than like a nonprofit. So that was, you know, that was a learning lesson. The same thing about managing people. Like, you know, I grew up in a very Asian family where nobody said good job. Right. Like when I lost my election, my dad was like, here are the 10 things you did wrong. <laughs> so this idea of like KPIs and performance review, like all that stuff was new to me. And it, it went in many ways, not really my style. Um, and, and so I had to learn a lot. I, I think the things that I had going for me was I had a board that believed in me. Like I always say, like, if you want to create something, you got to, you got to find your like ride or die folks, right? The people who are like, I see it. And I had those, like I had that in Jack Dorsey, like I had that in a handful of folks who, who believed in it before it was even real. And then, you know, I hired people who were smarter than me and, you know, I wasn't a coder. I couldn't design our curriculum, but I sure as hell could sell it. Right. And so that, but that didn't intimidate me of finding people who are experts and bringing them in and giving them a seat at the table. And, um, you know, I think that that was, I think the biggest thing I've learned though, is, you know, when I started Girls Who Code, I believed it was a pipeline problem. You know, when I started Girls Who Code, Twitter, Facebook were just starting. And we had this romantic view about big tech that it was all the good people mm. and they were only going to do good things. And they really wanted to hire women and people of color and they just couldn't find them. So Rush Johnny was just going to teach all of them. And then when I did, all nerds were welcome and you were all going to hire them. And what I've disappointingly learned eight, nine years later is that that's not true. Mm. That again, nobody gives up power. And that like there are still sexism and racism deeply embedded into the cultures of these companies, right? Many of which were built without us, that it's really hard to change. And, and I think secondly is, is this that they are, some of these companies have destroyed our country. And it's even more, it's, and it's because we weren't sitting at the table. You think that if women were sitting at the table and black people and brown people were sitting at the table in many of these companies that we would have had an insurrection that was organized on social media platforms? No. And um, the magnitude of that, right? And the reckoning of that is enormous. February 9 with Priyanka Chopra Jonas. I chose to go to America when I was 12 years old. I told my parents, I want to study with my cousins because I saw that as an opportunity for myself to mm-hmm. experience a different world at 12. And, you know, so, and I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what it was like going to a high school in America. God knows I didn't know what that meant, but um, I learned, I learned um, if there was ever a choice. And I say this in the book to sink or swim. I'm not the kind of person who'll sink. Yeah. You're going to give it your damnedest to swim. Yeah. You know, you you went to you went to the U.S. or you, I guess I'm here. You came to the U.S. when you're 12, 13. <laughs> did high, you know, did a few. You didn't go. You're, I'm here. 
you did a few years here and then you went back and you talked about how, you know, American high school did not prepare you super well, right? So I grew up in Guatemala. I was born in the US and then my dad is Guatemalan. We moved back there for 10 years. And, you know, a lot of the kids that I was around, this is something that I wish, I wish your experience and I wish my experience on every American kid. Here's why. Because when you start branching out, it is impossible to believe in American exceptionalism when you get out into the world. Because you start seeing that there is so much goodness and greatness out there. I mean, the kids I went to, the, the kids that were my friends on my block in Guatemala, you know, a, a third world war-torn country, we, we moved there right as the civil war was ending. There was violence everywhere. It was crazy. The kids I knew, knew anywhere from three to five to six languages, right? They had studied in Europe. They, they knew how to speak at least, at the very least, they all knew Spanish and they could speak English as well as I could or better, right? So at least they knew the two languages. You come to the States and kids here can barely speak the one language that they've been given, right? Like literally there's just terrible grammar everywhere all the time. And we've been so conditioned to believe that America is the best at everything that kids don't want to go branch out, right? They don't want to go study abroad. They don't want to believe that there are other amazing, great places out there. And so I wish, you know, you, you mentioned in the book that this cultural mashup of your life, you know, you said it invigorates me. It's important to me because I believe that we can all learn from one another, that we all need to learn from one another. And I wish that on American, not just children, Americans. I wish that on people living in this country because it's really, I think it has really hurt us to not believe the best about the rest of the world, to believe that we uh, are better than them and to not go out and learn from them, right? It's so funny you're saying that, Nick, but when I first came at 12 to the States, I moved to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And I remember when I was in high school there, it was a great experience. I met some amazing kids. Sure. I discovered Hot Pockets. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I remember having this conversation with um, some girl that I was talking to. And uh, I got a sense that, you know, she was like, I've ne I don't even have a passport. I've never, I didn't, I don't know anything about other countries. She asked me, um, if I go to school on an elephant in back in India, there was a, a level of ignorance, which was crazy, but I took it upon myself to educate them. So in world history class, I remember I did a whole uh, presentation about what India looked like and what countries outside the US looked like. And I remember this girl coming to me and being so fascinated by the fact that, you know, technology at that time which was late 99.9, you know, technology was kind of just erupting around the world, specifically in India. Tech was a really big deal. And I, you know, remember her looking at like really um, sort of high buildings and and being like, I didn't know that, you know, there were buildings like that, et cetera, um, and cars. And, and, I, and this is ninth grade, okay? And she was also like so fascinated by by the fact that, you know, she didn't even know about different countries in the world. And mm. I think it came from, and you hit the nail on the head, but I think it comes from a sense of, you know, we're um, self-sufficient. We don't need to be curious, but that's the beauty of social media, I feel. Like, yes, there's the pros and the cons, and um, but with streaming and social and the internet, actually, the internet was the the, the change um, I, that I see in America from the time that I was a kid 
to the time I've come back now, the curiosity of cross-pollination of cultures, of different people from different parts of the world actually fighting for, you know, representation is creating an education within America about different ethnicities. And, and I think that's, that's why it's so important uh, to normalize different people in, within entertainment. Like that's a big quest of mine. Um, to be able to, you know, see various kinds of movies from different parts of the world or different kinds of people, just exactly like what America looks like represented on entertainment. Because when I was a kid, when I was 13, 14 in the US, I didn't look, I didn't see anyone on TV that looked like me, except maybe Apu from The Simpsons. And that was also a white guy. But like, I didn't see that, right? But I wonder if I did see that if like Xena was Indian, say, for example, considering I saw so many Indian Americans in America or, you know, somebody like, would that have made me feel a little mm. less solitary or a little less alone? March 9 with Jedediah Jenkins. Anybody that's doing bad things is the hero of their own story. They think it's like Thanos. It's like mm. Thanos thinks he's doing something great for the universe by solving overpopulation. He is the right. hero and, and he knows it's going to get him in trouble and people aren't going to love him for it. But so does Barack Obama. Barack Obama thinks he's doing the best thing for the country and half the country hates him. And he's like, I know that a lot of people are going to hate me for this, but I think it's what's best for our country. And that's what every president thinks. And we're all varying degrees of... Um, you know, I, I spoke with your BFF, Ruthie, on the podcast a year and a half or so ago. Uh, and we spent, uh, she's so wonderful. I know. We spent uh, a bit of time talking on this this idea of hurt people hurt people, right? And yeah. heal people heal people. And most of us are not healed. We've not done that work. So, yeah, let's, let's take um, a Thanos or a Trump, for example. Like, mm -hmm. man, I've, I've been reading uh, Mary Trump's book, right? And she gives all this, like, background on the family. And mm. when you start reading about the environment mm. in which Donald Trump grew up, it is no wonder at all right. why he is the way that he is. I, I don't know whether I can say it's not his fault, right. but he is just living out of his reality. He lived in a very competitive environment. He lived where uh, if you performed well, uh, you got a pat on the back. And if you weren't doing what daddy wanted, like, fuck you, we're going to make your life miserable. We're going to make you mm -hmm. feel like shit. Like mm -hmm. that was the whole environment. And um, a, a, a father who was constantly trying to, I mean, literally you look at, you read about uh, his father and you're like, oh, it's the, it's two sides of the same. It's yeah. the same, it's the same person in different shape in different time, because there was always this need to look richer and to look younger I mean, he used to give like his, he used to give uh, a, a different age than he was to like reporters and press because he wanted to, he wanted to be reflected in the media differently. And then wow. we see that his son is saying, I'm worth this much money when there's no proof that that's actually the case, right? Like, it's like, well, <laughs> yeah. you, you can put yourselves on the Forbes, you know, billionaire list if you say that you're a billionaire and if you can somewhat, right. and if you can somewhat fudge the numbers and make it work, right? And so, yeah, it's, it gets, it, it, uh. I think it was exposure creates empathy is what you said in the mm. first book. And it's like, when, yeah, when you start exposing yourself to these stories and these ideas, whether it's a person or a place or a thing, you can't help but, I mean, I have grown more in empathy for Trump since literally, so the day that he left office and didn't even stick around, right, to hand over power, <laughs> wow. left, left, left on his helicopter, that was the day 
that I really, and maybe it was because I felt like there's gonna be less pressure and he hadn't at that point been tweeting for a while because he got kicked off. Like maybe I was just feeling a little better about the situation, but I started to feel sadder for him than I'd ever felt. Well, that has everything to do with, I mean, so anger is a, is an emotional immune response to feeling unsafe Mm. feeling. And so, Mm. and so when someone who is a hurt person is in a position of power, they are, they have the ability to hurt you. And so you are going to be angry and fight them until they are no longer in that position of power. And then when they are your peer or you have the space and safety to feel pity for them, you then have the bandwidth because now your your immediate life is no longer in danger or your even concept of democracy in sure. your whole country. Once yeah. they are removed from power, you can see that like, oh my God, this is like an abused person who is like damaged and needs like, counseling and love and he's never been loved in his life like once you remove them from power i've always said i think if trump was just my drunk rich uncle who had no power and was just talked the way he talked i would think he was hilarious i would be like no one listens to him but sometimes he's got some real zingers and they're really mean but like i do laugh under the table it's like and yet when you put that in power it is horrifying yeah and so i took my theory about why you feel empathy for him and and why you might feel empathy for George W. Bush after he's like no longer relevant. Right. It's this, right. it's the whole concept of, Oh, well you're no longer, you have you don't have the ability to hurt me anymore. So I can now see you from a safe distance and contextualize you. April 20 with Justin Baldoni. None of us have it figured out. And I think that's been the key to success so far and will be the key to success even in this book and in the podcast, I'm sure, is we want to help you unlearn all this bad, terrible shit that you've learned in your life. We want you to view masculinity differently, but we're not saying we have figured it all out and we don't have the way, right? Especially now, I think with, you talked about your black friend, Jamie, 51 years old, totally different experience. Today, I I would, it seems like a really interesting time in history to have this conversation because being a man looks totally different for so many different, I mean, you have gay men, you have trans men, you have, then you have uh, different skin colors and ethnic backgrounds and experiences. So you have to like approach this. And again, I'm, I'm affirming that I think you do this to the best of your ability, at least what I can tell. You have to approach this very like here are some things that I think apply to everybody that identifies as a man mm-hmm. and that wants that kind of has this masculinity about them. But you have to like you have to take all this in and process it for yourself to figure out yeah. what it means for you, right? Well, the whole point of the book is to undefining masculinity instead of redefining it simply means yeah. to make space for anybody who yep. identifies as a man. Yep. Because the invisible line that is drawn before we're born the box that we're put into by redefining it would mean that that line has to keep being redrawn. And I have no interest in redrawing that line. Mm -hmm. I just want it to be gone. I think we have to remove the line, get rid of the box. And if you are a man and you identify as a man, then you are a man. Mm-hmm. You don't have to try to be anything else because you already are. And that's the message of the book. That's the point of the book. And, and yes, to your point, 
the experience looks incredibly different for every man. That's why I'm not your teacher and I'm not your guru. I'm not going to sell you a business class or, or, Hey, here's a, here's this special thing with me on how to be a better man. I have no interest in that. I don't have time for that. I want to make my movies and build my company with this. It's, Hey, this is the shit that happened to me. This is what didn't work for me. And this is how it affected me. I'm sure you have a similar story. And what I found is it doesn't matter if it's a trans man or uh, a gender uh, non-conforming person or a black man or a Middle Eastern man, um, someone who's 50 or someone who's 20. What I'm seeing is the themes are universal. The things I talk about in the book, the things that have happened to me, they're all universal themes. The outcome or the experiences might be different, but I'm sharing my story as an invitation for you to take a look at yours. And if you can take a look at your story, you'd be like, oh shit, that happened to me. Oh, I had a similar experience to that. Oh, well then what else happened? And it'll start to get your brain moving. And again, and I say this early on, I don't believe masculinity is toxic. I love being a dude. I love being a man. Mm-hmm. But I also don't want to be a man um, and, and have to disown the parts of me that are also considered feminine. Because... Those are also parts that I love of myself. I don't want to have to kill off those parts. Bell Hooks talks about um, the the act of psychic self mutilation that men have to perform on ourselves in order to be seen as men. Mm. We have to kill off a part of our humanity, part of our our sensitivity, our compassion, our empathy, in order to be seen as a real man. Because we're as men, like the way you were raised, we're not allowed to show our feelings. Mm-mm. We're not allowed to to suck at something. We're not, we're not allowed to ask for help, right? You just learn by figuring it out. Just do it. Yep. Yep. You're not allowed to, you know, cry when you skin your knee. So where does all of those, where does all that pain go? Where does all the the doubt and the anxiety go? It goes somewhere. And then yet we wonder why white men, 21 year old white men go and kill people in mass shootings. Well, that's where it goes. It's pain. Yep. It's unrep- it's unexpressed pain and sadness and loneliness. It's why men kill themselves. It's why they do these terrible things. It's why they, it's why it's why they rape. It's why they sexually assault. It's why they hurt each other. It's all we're all affected by the same shit, and we got to call it out. And again, it's not toxic, but that shit left unexpressed becomes toxic. A cancer cell is no right. problem. We right. have them in our bodies they're, they're, until yeah, one we day, all have them. Yep. Until one day a trigger happens. And then suddenly, whether it's because of anxiety or pain or frustration or whatever we're dealing with, stress, something happens in the body, and then that cancer cell can reproduce, and that's when it becomes true cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, sure, sometimes it happens just on accident or it just happens in the body, but there's a trigger. Our body, something happens. And the same thing happens with masculinity. May 18 with Baratunde Thurston. The people that listen to this podcast, they want to make a difference in the world. They want to start things. They want to, they kind of want to fuck shit up, right? In society and culture. And they want to, they want to make changes. Yeah. Cause they give, a they damn. give a damn, but it doesn't yeah. happen in, in this kind of dreamy, uh, you know, fantasy kind of way where it's like, oh, I have a great idea and this is going to work. No, like it takes a long fucking time to make these things work. And it takes people pushing us, it takes people saying, 
hey, there's this job that you should take. You've been, you don't know that you've been working toward this, but you've been working toward this. And it takes, you know, loved ones and mentors and people around us saying, okay, these first three books or whatever, you know, not many people read them, but like, but this is the book that needs to come out and not, you know, and then boom, a New York Times bestseller. And it just, it's, it's an incremental, I, I see this incremental building, but I'm sure what I want to also point out is there were probably lots of times along the way where you may have said, well, this isn't going to work, or maybe I should just give up and go back to that corporate thing. I don't know. A lot of people do where it's like, well, it hasn't hit yet, so maybe it's not going to hit ever. And I'm always encouraging people, like, don't fucking give up. Like, if this is something, (laughs) if you feel this fire in your bones, if this is something that you think God or whatever higher power you believe in put you on earth to do, like, keep pushing. Because A, the universe doesn't owe you anything, but it will require you continuing to push, continuing to move forward, because you don't know, like, if if it's hurdle number 20 that's going to be your, your, your kind of jumping off point or hurdle yeah. 45 or hurdle 120. You just don't know those things. We're not privy to that information. So we got to keep pushing. We got to keep hustling, right? I definitely have, um, I've lived with an unreasonable set of beliefs in myself, like a reasonable set of behaviors would have had me change course at many other points mm. and just dude it's not working stop get just get the job just get the health care just get something more secure and more stable and the reasons that i didn't do that are um self-delusion it's very powerful it's very useful sometimes pays off you know you believe something about yourself until it's yep. true before it's true. Um, and sometimes it never comes true. Like, it's not a guarantee. There are, there are no guarantees. Death is guaranteed. For now, right? But that, otherwise, the, everything else is up for grabs. So I definitely, I, I believed in myself. I think I was very fortunate to feel relatively free in a world that doesn't encourage me to feel that way. And I just, I I grew up loved, you know, I grew up housed and clothed. I grew up encouraged to explore what I was into. I I didn't grow up in a household where my mother's like, you're going to do this. And if you don't do this, you're not my child. You know, there's there's people who live that story. And so if, if presented with an opportunity to step out on their own and define themselves, it could be terrifying because no one ever told them that they could do that. I was told from a very early age, you can be anything, you can do anything. I think I believed my mom, you know, for, for better ultimately, but sometimes for worse. Um, so that, that helped. I got lucky. You know, there, there, I cannot, there's like an alternate version of my life where I end up in jail. There's an alternate version of my life where I'm struck by a straight bullet and don't make it. There's an alternate version of my life where uh, I miss the email. I just, I miss the email and I don't get that job at the onion, which unlocked so many other levels. Like if I look at my life as a video game, like that was a key level up and I could see so much more of the map when I got through that door. But without it, I'm not saying I wouldn't be Baratunde. I would always be Baratunde, but I might be a very different version. 
you know, maybe end up working at an advertising agency. Right? That's very plausible, very still storytelling, still digital, uses a lot of the things, but I might not, my efforts and my labor may have been loaned out for much longer to somebody else's name rather than doing it in my own mm. name and, and, and risking my own reputation in the process. So all that uh, is, is part of it. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about this for hours. I probably shouldn't. But I, it's, I, it is not as simple as just, just pursue your passion, yeah, man. Yeah, right. Like, just follow your dreams. I was lucky, you know? I was so lucky. And I was, it was timed well. And, and I worked hard, right? It's all those things. Um, and I had people put, even that, the, the How to Be Black book, like my friend Maui, refugee from Eritrea, Ethiopia, met him at Harvard. This dude had credibility. He wrote a book. He wrote a memoir when he was like 18 years old, like what do you, or 21 years old. What do you, you're 21, you're writing a memoir. You think you're Frederick Douglass? What are you, what are you doing here? And, but then when he saw my scribblings, my little email newsletter, my newsflash newsletter, my self-published, printed at Kinko's, stapled at home books in very heavy quotation marks. I remember him saying, he's like, he's like, you know what you do? You like, you mock the world and the world needs mocking. You need to write a mm. book. June 1 with Sharon McMahon. Talk about the, this rise of misinformation, disinformation, the difference between the two, and how your platform, um, specifically around government and politics, um, has shifted the conversation over the last few months, and and and, and therefore kind of gained, kind of risen in popularity. Mm. Okay, so the difference between mis and disinformation is that misinformation is doesn't necessarily have an intentionality attached to it. Disinformation is I am purposely going to mislead you on this topic. Um, I am purposely going to put wrong information out there in an effort to bolster my cause or to detract from the position of somebody else. Misinformation is, I view it as much more prevalent. Most people actually don't even necessarily have a negative intent. Most people have the have an intent of, well, I just want to be safe. I just want to warn people. I just want people to know what is really going on. They don't have an intent to harm. They right. believe that they're helping. Right. But in but in doing so, they are perhaps perpetuating uh, a falsehood, maybe unknowingly. Mm-hmm. They're perpetuating wrong information unknowingly because they don't have an actual understanding of what the what could actually happen, what is actually happening, what is possible. Because of that, because it's confusing, because government is nuanced, con- purposely complicated, our, our American political system is purposely complicated. Yep. We invented a complicated system on purpose. So because of all of that, it can be very difficult to ascertain what is really going on. Co- that in addition, coupled with this idea that there are some actors out there in the world, by actors, I just mean people acting in a certain way, who speak in very convincing, compelling, and authoritative tones. And when you say something authoritatively, 
people tend to believe that you have authority on the issue. And, you know, I could go online tomorrow and start talking authoritatively about uh, biomedical engineering or about astrophysics, two topics of which I have zero training or actual authority on. But if I say it convincingly enough, it can make you, it can make it seem as though I do. And so you, I could very easily start a misinformation campaign just as a, just as an experiment to show people what would happen. Um, I'm not going to, but I, but Thank it would you. be very easy to do because right. I understand the mechanics of how misinformation happens. So because it's complicated and can be difficult to fact check, it can be difficult to um, differentiate the real from the fake. It just, and then it just makes it easy to virally spread misinformation being like, I like it. I agree with it. I agree with that. Reshare. I love it. Reshare it. That, oh, that is for sure true. He is absolutely a jerk. Reshare. You know what I mean? Um, Just that like share button has created this, this viral misinformation. And as much good as, as exists with social media, um, it, it, it's just a tool. It can be used. The tool can be used for good. Just like a hammer can be used to build a house. A hammer can also be used to do inc- inflict incredible damage. Mm-hmm. Um, the tool of social media is very, very powerful. July 13 with Taylor Schumann. You know, we've seen that so much, even with the pandemic, with COVID, like, well, it's my right. It's my right. I don't have to do this. I don't want to do it. Yep. Okay. But is that good for people you love? Yep. Does that's that fine. That, that feeling is fine if you live on an island all by yourself, but you're surrounded yeah. by people that are affected by everything you do or don't do. Yes. And we, you know, we are built to be in community with one another. And that means that we have to see the people around us and we have to make sacrifices for the common good, not just about what we want, not just about what makes us feel good. Um, and that's hard. We don't like to do that. I don't like to do that. Like I'm the mother of a two and a half year old and guess what? I don't like to play trucks all day long. (laughs) (laughs) Helpful to my toddler. It makes him feel loved. And I can play trucks with my toddler. Like I can do that for him. And you know, if, if we can just kind of take it down to a childlike level, say, yep. I can give this up if it's good for someone else. Yep. Um, and we're just not very good at that in America. We haven't really had to be, but you it's know. time. Yeah, it's time. Like it, there were so many things that we didn't know. You don't know what you yeah. don't know in 10, yeah. 15, 20 years ago, whether it's sex abuse, whether it's gun violence, whether it's any number of issues, we didn't have the data or it was there, but it was, you know, we just didn't have the internet and we didn't have the accessibility of these, these facts and this data. Yes. Now we do. The excuse is gone. We have to make moves. And one of the things I loved about all that you shared from a Christian perspective was most of that applies to anybody, whether they hold to another faith or don't hold any faith at all. Like the, the idea of loving your neighbor and living a sacrificial life that permeates almost every religion. And just, I mean, you look at the Stoics, you look at the whoever else, like they've been writing about this for a long time, you know, like these ideas of, 
yeah, not not living like you're on an island and putting others' needs before yours. You know, I have gotten called. Um, I still have some lingering friendships from my growing up years in very like conservative fundamentalism, mm-hmm. and I still get trolled all the time in the work that I do. And I've gotten called all sorts of terrible things by people because I have made it very clear in private and publicly that. I will not have a gun in my home for safety or otherwise. No guns in my home ever, not ever going to happen because the, 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 uh, uh, the dangers far outweigh the benefits by, by, by a a long shot. And I've been told so many times that I am uh, a wimp, a pussy, a this, a that, because I won't take care of my family. Look at you. Somebody's going to come in and kill your family. So I start where I start from is. I, which is again, also a Christian ideal and an ideal that permeates other religions as well. But it's this Mm -hmm. idea of my life's not that important. Like if my time to go is tonight because someone breaks in and kills me, then that was my time to go. Um, My life is not that important. And it's definitely not important enough for me to murder someone, whether they were asking for it or not. The damage that I would do to myself, psychologically, physically, emotionally, looking someone in the eye across my living room, murdering them, even yeah. if they had every intention of murdering me, that lives with you for the rest of your life. I don't want to live with that. I don't want to live with that. Yeah. That's not something I want yeah. to live with. And so we have to, again, religious and non-religious people like these principles you just shared are the way forward. Like what's easier? Of course, it's easier to have a closet full of guns, but you know what the hard, more more effective thing to do is? To put aside everything about yourself that makes you get guns and spend the next 20 years in your community transforming the shit out of it. Yeah. Making sure that whatever causes violence in your area is gone. That's the hard work, but that's the actual work. If you just stay in your home with your guns and like waiting for someone to come and get you, you're not, you're not being part of the solution. You are still part of the problem. But if we can figure out how to reorient our thinking and say, again, I'm not telling people that they can't own any guns and that you can't safely have them in your home. I don't want to do that. And I want less people to do that. But that's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is the hard work. If you really want to see, if you really want to feel safer in your community, it's not to have five guns in your closet. Cause as you just right. shared with these numbers and these statistics, you're, you're in danger in your home. Your kids are in danger. Right. If you really want to see change, go out there and be the change. Like, yeah. but it's, but it takes hard work to start that organization or to partner with an already existing organization five, 10, 15 years of work, volunteering, putting in the work, mentoring, yeah. uh, you know, you know, uh, all the things that we can do to eradicate the need for crime. Yes. yes. That's the and, good work. Yeah. And you've touched on a couple really important things here, which is that like you're describing now, local violence prevention programs are the number one way to reduce gun violence yes. in the community. It's not a laws. It's violence prevention, it's mentoring programs, it's, you know, funding and like helping young people find jobs and like basic things that we can actively influence. Um, You know, I I think for so many people, they think, well, I can't write a law and I can't pass a law. So like, what can I do? Well, there are things you can do. And if you don't have the time to get out there, give those organizations money, like do whatever you can. These are easy ways to get involved. And then the other thing I think you've touched on here for me is this um, casualness with which we view guns and what they can do. Um, We have lost 
I mean, I wasn't around a hundred years ago, so I can't totally speak to it, but we have lost any sort of reverence we have for this item that is only created to harm and injure. And, you know, someone asked me on Instagram the other day, I was doing, you know, Q and A and they said, you know, what do you want to teach Henry, my son about guns? And, you know, I, I said some things, but I think the number one thing that I want people to really get is that even if a gun is used in an act of self-defense, like you're describing, you know, someone comes into your home and they're trying to kill your kids. If you use that gun in self-defense and you injure that person or kill that person, you've saved your family, but you have done harm. Yep. And that gun has caused harm. Yep. No matter what it was used for, it has caused harm. And not just that for that person, they have a family, maybe they have kids, maybe they, you know, they have whatever. So you have created a ripple of harm, whether or not it was for a good reason. Guns always do harm. August 3 with Pedro Andrade. I like that you're you're making a point even in the beginning as you're describing how the show sort of evolved in saying my goal, my primary goal was not to save the world yeah. or to even tell people act like I'm trying to save the world. That's important because a nobody no nobody can do that. I hate mm-hmm. these these things that we say and these ideas we put out that are just unattainable. Because that, I think, going back to what we talked about walking over here from the coffee shop, you know, it, it burns people out. Mm-hmm. It, it, it burns people out and or they don't even start. It because they, too it's, big. It's too big, <laughs> yeah. right? So the, the best thing that you can do, and you alluded to it a second ago, the best thing I can do, one of the things, one of the reasons I'm building this let's give a damn thing, I want to, yes, I would love if people would listen and partake and watch what's going on in let's give a damn and then go out and do stuff. That would be amazing. And that is happening. But mainly I'm trying to take away your willful ignorance. Mm-hmm. So like, like you said, you saw a gap in information, mm-hmm. a gap in data, like you couldn't find it. It wasn't easily accessible. So what are you going to, you're going to go bridge that gap so that people can no longer say, I didn't know that yeah. I didn't know that deforestation or animal trafficking or whatnot in the Amazon affects the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. I didn't know that what happens in the Amazon, the sixth largest country in the world, mass land mass wise, uh, if, if, if things get fucked up there, it affects us mm-hmm. over in California and Australia. I had no idea. They watch your show. Mm-hmm. You present the stories. You share the data, the information. You take them vicariously to these places. Then they can't say, I didn't know anymore. Well, and also the this moment, to me, it feels like a privilege, uh, as ironic as this sounds, but this moment is pivotal. Like, it, we, there is no turning back. We're in this, uh, when I was born, 1% of the Amazon, as we know, had been destroyed. Now 20% has Jeez. been destroyed. 22, maybe. If we get to 40%, we get to a point of no return. So I kind of feel like someone needs to do something, even if that something is to go down there and try to find answers and ask the right questions and um, see what that feels like. I mean, on a personal level, like I said, I only hope your kids, my hopefully my grandkids, they'll have the Amazon around 
but we still have it. So I felt like I just needed to, for myself, once again, not to save the planet, for myself to sleep at night, I just had this drive to go there and see it with my own eyes and... September 14 with Race Bouillon. It boils my blood and uh, it makes me angry as well that the poor and the working class citizens of this country, they were always, they always suffer, they're still suffering well, while, you know, as you mentioned that we find money to go to war, to do unnecessary things. I mean, we borrowed two trillion dollars to fund this Afghan war, and our, and on on top of that, we paid five hundred billion dollars as interest, and this loan we will have to continue. We'll have to pay until two thousand fifty, so we could borrow money to run a war, two trillion dollars. So while we could not borrow some money to provide quality health care, to come up with the take care of the students to pay their you know, uh, student loans, to take good care of our citizens. Why we cannot do that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm 100% on board. It's, it's, it's frankly, it's, uh, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Um, and again, it's more ridiculous that it's a bipartisan thing. You know, like even our current, you know, president who is a breath of fresh air from the last one, <laughs> in, my, in my humble opinion, you know, he, 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 he advocates against universal health care. He wants it obviously to become more accessible, but it's like, dude, we have, we have so many other countries that are modeling for us what it looks like to give all of your citizens health care. Like if you don't have health, you know, I, I even advocate for, I, I go as far as saying housing is a, is a human right. Like all these things, right. We could, we Absolutely. could eradicate, we could er eradicate homelessness like tomorrow, but let's just start with the very basic. I can live on the street right? Hundreds of thousands of people do it every night. But if you don't have your health, you have nothing. That's all you have. If you're not healthy, uh, you will either die or have a terrible quality of life. Like healthcare is the most basic human right. And we have this, sh we're living in the shittiest version of it here in this country. It's, it's, it's really wild. It's pure politics. Uh, yeah. I mean, it is, it's theater, right? And, yes. and you know, again, we, we can find money for the things that we want always. Uh, what, what is your, uh, recovery? I, I, I want to move toward, you know, the, the really not that this, not that up until this point, it hasn't been really powerful and meaningful because it has, I'm blown away and very emotional, but like, I want to get to world without hate. And I want to get to the things that I want to get to you advocating for Mark Stroman, even when he, you know, most people I assume said, don't do that. He deserves what's get you know, coming to him. Um, what was your what was your recovery like? Because you did you know you did say that you got discharged and you had basically they said you're on your own, figure it out. What what was what did that look like? Well, as a result of this shooting, I received more than three dozen shotgun pellets in my face, and I'm still carrying them today. I I went through several eye surgeries, and unfortunately, though, I lost vision in one eye. Mm. And my face and skull peppered with more than three dozen shotgun pellets. I lost my home, my job, my sense of security, and my fiance. Mm. But gained, but gained more than sixty thousand dollars in medical bills. 
And when my father heard what happened to me, he suffered a stroke, but thankfully survived. I reached up to the Red Cross, but they told me that I was only qualified for one week's worth of groceries. There is not a single day that goes by that I'm not reminded or impacted by this terrible tragedy, but I continue to make peace with my pain. The recovery process was long. Um, I had to wait for at least a couple of weeks to find a doctor who would treat me. Before receiving assurance, he would be paid. And um, when I felt when I felt a little better, I began working at a, uh, at a restaurant, attending school at the same time. Uh, a Muslim man from the local mosque gave me a scholarship to attend school. And a Christian doctor who aided to perform surgeries before receiving assurance, he began treating me. People from you know, many kind and caring Americans came forward. And the Air Force veteran gave me his extra car. And I was blown away that, that this is the America, warm, welcoming, generous, hospitable. That's what you dreamed of. That's what you dreamed of. Before coming to US. But at that point, when I started getting, when I was receiving the kindness, support from fellow Americans. It renewed my, you know, my faith in humanity. It renewed my faith in American people that yes, it was only one man who did this heinous crime and there are millions of kind, caring, loving Americans out there. And that's what I experienced later on when people started coming and supporting in my recovery process. And that's the time I, real, I felt that this is the America that I heard so much about growing up back home. And now I'm, I'm experiencing that, that kindness, that generosity, that uh, hospitality. October 26 with Catherine Hayhoe. When I read this book, I go from feeling, what the hell are we doing? And I'm an action-oriented person. I am known for this. If, if there's a problem, I go after it. There's no talking about it without doing it. Even if I end up messing up, this is who Nick is. It, but I still start the book with a lack of hope because of just what's going on around us. And I leave thinking, yeah, we can do this. I think we can actually do this. So Saving Us, the title, talk, talk to me about why you chose that. Yes. So Saving Us is deliberately chosen to refer to the fact that it is not about saving the planet. So often we're told to save the planet, save the whales, save the this, save the that. The planet will be orbiting the sun long after we are gone. It is about us. It is about us humans, our civilization, and a lot of other living things on this planet. That is who is at stake here. And when we realize that, it immediately tackles the biggest problem we have, which is psychological distance. We, we often feel as if we're, we're asked to choose between our comfortable lifestyle or our economy or the things we do in our life and the planet. Choose between yeah. our life and the planet. Well, right. we can't orbit around in outer space without the resources this planet provides. There is no life. There is no economy. There is no nothing without this planet. 
So where did the subtitle come from? A case for hope and healing in a divided world. Well, the book is really about more than climate. It's about the fact that we are more divided than ever today. We can't yeah. seem to come to agreement on anything. Simple things like vaccines and masks and how to treat people and how to have a civil dialogue. And climate change is today and has been over the last 10 years, one of the most politically polarized issues in the whole country. So the book is really about if we can come together, identify common ground and sensible solutions to the number one most politically polarized issue, what else might we be able to fix along the way? Yeah, that's really beautiful. So just again, so people have a little more context on you before we jump in the book. You are Canadian, living in Texas. You are an evangelical Christian, married to a pastor, um, and you're all of the titles that I just mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, so you have been, you, you don't come from this country. You're in this country now and you're living in, um, <laughs> it's funny. I was, I was interviewing Adrian Grenier, the actor a couple, couple weeks ago. And he, uh, very kindly rebuked me because a lot of times when I get going, I'm an Enneagram eight. I, uh, am very passionate. I get very angry about things that I think could be fixed. Climate is one of them, right? Like I, I think we can work on this and we're not, I get very angry. I get very like passionate about things. And I started to go off a little bit in our conversation about, you know, Texas and people living in the South. And why do you like, cause he left New York city, which to me is the greatest city in the world. And it's like, you left a lifetime in New York city to go live at where in Texas. And, you know, and we lived four years in Nashville before this. So, um, I start out, I, I, I have my natural reaction to people that don't have to live in the South, but do is I jest and joke, but some of the best people, when I, you know, once he rebuked me and I, you know, and I pulled back a little bit and I start thinking about my relationships with the people I know, some of the best people I know, literally some of the best people on the planet live in these places where, um, there are a variety of, of, of backgrounds when it comes to belief about the climate, about it's not, in other words, it's a very mixed group of people living in these places. And Texas is this humongous state with so many different kinds of people and so many different ways of thinking and living. So I want to just point that out that you're not, you know, you're not, you and I probably I don't know, maybe we'll have another conversation at some point. We'll talk about more uh, different topics. Like maybe we don't agree on a lot of things, uh, it, it, but you, so I, I wanted to make it clear that you're not living on the coast, you know, this liberal elite living on the coast, just speaking, to, you know, preaching to the choir, speaking from a bubble. You are living in a state that is feeling very much the effects of climate change, right? Very much feeling the effects of our climate crisis. There was a winter storm this past year um, that took, you know, took a power grid out and people died from this, right? That's not classic Texas weather thing, like shit's happening there. And so I just wanted to point that out. This is, this is the context in which you live. You know, it's not maybe the context that where most climate scientists live and work, right? No, you're totally right. In fact, I, when I moved here 15 years ago, I was the only climate scientist within a 200 mile radius. And I believe I still am. Insane. And Lubbock, Insane. Texas is the, according to at least one survey, the second most politically conservative city in the whole country after Provo, Utah. And I've spoken at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah too. And so my feeling is, is if we can talk about climate change here, 
we can talk about it anywhere. And it isn't a case of people not agreeing. Often we don't talk about it because we don't know what to do about it and who wants to have yet another depressing conversation. So I think you're totally right. Living in Texas is the perfect place to be for what I do. And this is where the book came from. Because Texas is the most vulnerable state in the country to the impacts of climate change. Climate change is loading our weather dice against us. In fact, that's why I often call it global weirding rather than global warming. It's increasing the risk of everything from our droughts and our hurricanes to our crazy winter storms. There was even a human fingerprint on that winter storm due to a warming Arctic. Texas is home to the oil and gas industry. But Texas cities are leading the way with climate action, including the city of Houston, San Antonio, Austin, and more. Texas has so much wind and solar energy potential, it could supply the whole country with electricity if it truly chose to. It's number one in wind, it's number two in solar, but it's climbing quickly. And in fact, the biggest solar uh, farm in, in the U.S. is being built just outside of Dallas. Yet in Texas, people are so politically polarized about this issue. So this is the perfect place to be having these conversations. But if we can have them here, we can have them everywhere. November 2 with Kirsten Powers. Okay, let's dig into the book. Uh, Super exciting book. You're a, as I've already stated, you're a great debater. You can hold your own. The Washington Post described you as a bright-eyed, sharp-tongued, and gamely combative. And I even saw this video on YouTube. You didn't put it out. Somebody else did. They compiled. And the the video is called Kirsten Powers Battles Idiots. That's the name of the video. video. (laughs) And it's just, it literally is a compilation of you battling idiots. I don't agree with the the title given to them. But um, so so again, you're you're an Enneagram eight. You're you're known for holding your own, and you're it's very substantive. You obviously know where you're coming from, uh, you know, by and large. How do you? And I'm asking this sarcastically. How do you get off writing a book about grace? Like, yeah. How, how did? Where was that moment that you said, "I, Kirsten Powers, need to write a book about called Saving Grace, about grace and how we need to live better." Yeah, I think the reason that I was the really the perfect person to write this book is because it was so hard. Mm. And I think it's hard for everybody. But since I'm speaking to another Enneagram 8, telling me to dial down the self-righteousness and and stop believing that I write about everything and know everything and I'm, I'm the savior of the world and I'm going to come in and save everybody uh, was very hard. It was very hard. It was very hard to become healthy, honestly. And so I recognized that I, I recognized that I was not behaving in a way, or honestly, more of it was even what I was thinking about people Mm. that, that the way the soundtrack in my head about other people and the contempt and the judgment and the hatred and then also with some of my behavior was not aligned with what I said I believed. So I said I believed in loving your neighbor and even loving your enemies. And I was so far away from loving anybody. It was a joke. And I also, honest, being totally honest, I didn't even want to be aligned. I just was, this is point. It was like, this is pointless. There's no reason to even try. Like, this is not, yeah. this is like laying down your weapon or something. I'm not going to do that. Like, this is not a time for that. Um, but it, it became pretty clear to me that this was an unsustainable way to live and, and that I actually do need to be aligned and I actually do need to 
align my behavior and my brain and my thoughts with what I say I believe. And I had an intuition that what we needed was more grace and that what I needed was to have more grace for other people. And that's how it happened. It really came as an intuition. I didn't know it was going to be a book. Um, I ended up doing a Twitter thread about it, repenting for some of the things that I had done that I thought were problematic. I wrote a column about it. I write it USA Today. My editor asked me to write a column. And from that column, uh, a book agent reached out to me and said, you know, I think this would make a really good book. And the more I thought about it, I thought it, it would make a really good book. And I think it would be a really good way for me to spend the next couple of years. Yeah, really digging into this issue and figuring out, is this possible? And I'll be honest with you, I wasn't sure the book was going to get done. I, at many points, I was going to give the money back and just said I couldn't, can't do this because I wasn't sure if it was possible or for me, right? I wasn't sure if I was able to get there. And, you know, the end of the story is I got there in, a, in ways I couldn't even have imagined, you know, that I could actually like I said, care about what's going on in the world and not be a complete mess, anxious pile of like fury all the yeah. time. Right. Yeah. If my memory serves me correctly, that, that Twitter thread you referenced beginning of 2019, it was around the, the Covington kid, that whole situation. Right. Is that, is that correct with the timeline? Well, everybody. Yeah. So that's when I tweeted, but it's not what it was about. So it was basically, that was the last time I went on Twitter and argued with people. And sure. I think that what it was, was I was already in this place of thinking about this and I had been dialing back my social media use and, and really trying to figure out how to change course. And, and then I would say when that happened, I realized, and I thought I was making a lot of progress. And I think I was making a lot of progress in a lot of ways, but sure. I realized I got pulled back into it so quickly and, and behaved in a way that I, I wasn't super psyched about and also just had a horrible experience anyway, regardless of mm. my behavior, just of the way I was being treated uh, that I just, that was a point where I said, this will be the last time this happens. And it was the last time that it happened. And I, and so I took time and really intentionally did an audit of my public life yeah, and went back through. And so, so I ended up writing that Twitter thread where I named a lot of things that I had done. And then same thing in the column, I think what happened was the, you know, USA Today, the picture they put with the column was of the Covington kids, but there's only one line in the column about them. So mm. it's, so people, it was about a lot more than that sure. going back a lot farther. And so, and it was about how I treated conservatives and liberals and everybody in the middle. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't that I was feeling like I had not had grace only with a certain group of people. I had been pretty graceless across the board a lot of times. And, you know, a lot of people said to me after I wrote that column, particularly my colleagues said, you're being too hard on yourself. You're so reasonable. You know, you're the voice of reason. Like you just, you're being too hard on yourself. And I said, look, I think that's true. I think I am pretty reasonable and I think I can be reasonable and I can be the voice of reason and I can be toxic sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> like those yeah. two things can coexist and Both I don't get a true. pass. Yeah. yeah. I don't get a pass on the toxic stuff because most of the time I'm reasonable, right? Like I'm a grown up. I should not be acting like some dysfunctional 14 year old on Twitter. And 
that's what I was doing. And that's what a lot of people are doing. And I had to step back and be like, I am a full grown person. What am I doing? And last, but definitely not least, December 7 with Shannon Watts. I just got a, I got a direct message on Instagram from someone that I don't know, someone that follows Let's Give a Damn's work, but they, they, they DM'd sort of frantically, and they've been watching everything this past week, and these are his direct words that he wrote to me. He said, I was just wondering, why not ban guns overall? Like, you don't have to defend yourself with a gun if others don't have them right either or either, right? And he's saying this very confused and he goes, what's the obstacle? Because guns cause violence. And if you take that away, and that is really, uh, again, that's very complex. And we have these people that treat the second amendment as if it were written in stone, like the 10 commandments to Moses and that we can't change (laughs) things. And then we can't update our thinking uh, and what were guns like back when they, you know, wrote that amendment. But what is your, because I'm I'm so glad you brought that point and we'll get to Oxford here in a second, but it's not just these mass shootings. It is the fact that our, this country is absolutely fanatically obsessed with guns. We have more guns than human beings in this country. And that like hurts me when I think about that. That really hurts me when I think about the fact that we have more of these deadly pieces of metal than we do actual human beings. So what would your response be to this kid from Hungary who lives in Europe where he's like, I don't know what a mass shooting is. Like, I don't worry about going outside or going to school and seeing that. What's your response as we get into this about like, what are some of the challenges that you faced as you've brought up, not just in the context of school shootings and mass shootings, but just guns, gun violence overall? I see your Twitter feed. It's just you. It's a lot of things. It's very educational. But a lot of times you're sharing these stories over and over again. And again, every time that that tweet comes through, it just like breaks my heart that we see so much violence and we don't do a fucking thing about it. Or it seems like we're not doing anything about it. So what would your response be to that young Hungarian boy who's like, what the fuck, America? Like, why can't you fix this? <clears throat> Ugh. I mean, it's it's so complicated, and there's so many things that America has that that other countries don't. I mean, you know, I, I thought Senator Murphy, Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut, who you know, Sandy Hook is part of his district, he he wrote a book that really talks about how violence is part of our DNA, um, and and particularly around slavery that that we sort of accepted that part of the of the violence is our country, and it is part of our original sin, but it is also part of the fabric of the country. And so the, the logical outcome then of, of tolerating this level of gun violence, you know, that's sort of a thread that pulls through the, the history of our country. But also, if you look at what we have that no other country has, you know, we have um, the Second Amendment in our Constitution, which is supposed to be a, a framework for lawmaking and not a suicide pact, but, but that's essentially what it's turned into. Uh, the other thing we have that no other particularly high-income country has is a gun lobby. The gun lobby has become one of the wealthiest, most powerful special interests that's ever existed, and we've essentially turned our lawmaking over to them, right? Yes, you profit from this, and we're going to let you essentially write our gun laws as, as a recipe for disaster, um, and then the other thing, as you mentioned, you know, we have close to 400 million guns in this country. Uh, it's difficult to put that genie back in the bottle for all the reasons I just mentioned. Now, there are other countries with high rates of gun ownership who have that have much lower levels of gun violence because they have incredibly strong gun laws. Uh, what, what our lawmakers have decided is that 
uh, more guns and fewer gun laws uh, is an experiment that we're going to engage in. And, and what that has given us is a 25 times higher gun homicide rate than any pure nation. Dear friends and damn givers, that is it for today. Thank you for spending time with us this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's show and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. A sincere thanks to each and every one of you for showing up today. Continue showing up throughout this year. We have so many amazing things in store for you. This is the year I believe that Let's Give a Damn will continue in big ways to flourish and grow. We have so many things in the works, so thank you for sticking around. I'm so grateful for each and every one of you. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.